Foreign Relations Committee uh, will now come to order. We have convened this hearing to examine modern slavery and what is being done about it. We recognize that the United States Congress and our executive agencies have worked hard to draw attention to and address modern slavery. But I believe we have come to a point where we can do more. We need to, we need to take these efforts to the next level. I think most Americans would be stunned to know that slavery still exists in this world. Let me, let me pause to state that again. It is difficult to imagine that in this modern day, more than 27 million people around the world are forced to live as slaves. At this hearing, in addition to our expert witnesses, we will hear from two individuals who suffered and ultimately escaped this experience and went on to help others. And we thank them for being with us today. Modern forms of slavery thrive where the rule of law is weakest. Corruption, crime, and cultural attitudes contribute to a climate of low risk and impunity for those who profit from modern slavery. In many instances, modern slavery is a crime of opportunity for perpetrators. It is often practiced quite openly, for example, in brick or rug manufacturing or in bars or brothels. Under U.S. law, such conditions are defined as the most severe forms of trafficking in persons, including forced sexual servitude of minors and adults and bonded and other forced labor conditions. Women, children, and men alike are subjected to involuntary labor or sexual exploitation. According to a leading non-governmental non organization, forced labor accounts for 74% of victims Enforced sexual servitude accounts for 26% of victims. Women and girls are especially vulnerable, accounting for 54% of victims. Children's un children under the age of 18 account for 26% of victims. We have been to countries and met with people who survived this horrific experience and heard from people who worked to end modern slavery. U.S. government and private philanthropic funding are spurring increasingly sophisticated efforts to combat modern slavery. There's a growing consensus that in order to end the practice of modern slavery, reliable baseline data and consistent and effective monitoring and evaluation are needed to deal with this issue. Leveraging and coordinating private and government funding are also seen as key challenges by many in the anti-modern slavery community. Today, we will explore these questions to help inform our thinking on how we can maximize our efforts and take them to the next level and to find the best way forward to begin the process in earnest of putting an end to modern slavery. With that, I turn to our distinguished ranking member, Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thanks for calling a very important hearing. Human trafficking in the form of sexual exploitation, forced labor, forced marriage, debt bondage, and the sale and exploitation of children is one of the greatest moral challenges of our time. And the numbers are staggering. As we speak, there are 50 million refugees and displaced people in the world, the largest number since World War II. All are at risk of exploitation, and some will fall victim to human trafficking. This is not a new phenomenon, but there are new, more sinister factors exacerbating it with the growth of transnational organized crime, the rise of brutal nihilistic groups like ISIL and Boko Haram, and sectarian violence forcing millions to flee their homes.
The International Labor Organization estimates that there are at least 21 million victims of human trafficking in the world. Over 5 million of them are children. It is estimated that forced labor alone generates $150-plus billion in profits annually, making it the second-largest income source for international criminals next to the drug trade, making it obscenely lucrative for unscrupulous labor brokers to induce people to cross borders thinking that they are going for legal work only to trap them in labor or sexual exploitation. NGOs and civil society have been doing what they can to combat human trafficking, and business and governments should do more to help. Governments can muster more political will. Companies can clean up their supply chains and make that information public. And the public can be more aware of who picks the fruit on their breakfast cereal in the morning or who slaved in a sweatshop to sew the shirt on their back. This hearing helps raise, the, helps raise that awareness. And with that, Mr. Chairman, uh, I look forward to working with you in the coming months on a bipartisan approach to ending every form of human trafficking around the world. Thank you, and I want to thank uh, others for being here. Um, we'll now turn to our witnesses and appreciate uh, the tremendous commitment that they have shown to this effort. Our first witness is Gary Halgen, the founder and president of International Justice Mission, IJM a global organization that protects the poor from violence by partnering with local authorities to rescue victims, bring criminals to justice, restore survivors, and strengthen justice systems. IJM combats slavery, sex trafficking, rape, police brutality, property grabbing, and other forms of violence in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, Southeast Asia, before founding IJM, he served as the director of the UN investigation in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide, and as a human rights attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice. He has been recognized by the U.S. State Department as a trafficking and persons hero. I've gotten to know him personally, and he certainly deserves uh, that recognition. Our second witness is Shauna. I'm going to call you Shauna, if that's okay. Uh, the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C., the largest global worker rights organization in the United States. The Solidarity Center works with partners and allies from more than 400 unions, non-governmental organizations, legal aid groups, and human rights defenders from around the world to help workers exercise their rights and improve their working conditions. Prior to her appointment as, as executive director, she served as the Solidarity, Solidarity Center's regional program director for the Middle East and North Africa, where she worked directly with victims of forced labor and human trafficking and with labor activists and human, human rights defenders. Thank you for being here and for sharing your thoughts and viewpoints today. We'd like to remind you that your full testimony uh, full statements will be included in the record, record and without objection. So if you could please keep your remarks to about five minutes, we would appreciate it so members can engage you in, in questions. And with that, uh, Mr. Halgen, if you would begin, we would appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you very much for your extraordinary leadership in convening this hearing. Uh, the senators who are on this committee, I would just like to say that I know that you have on this committee before you a whole world of threats and crises, and it's a fair question as to whether or not modern-day slavery actually merits this kind of attention today. And as the leader of what is now the world's largest anti, 
slavery organization, I just want to assure you of three things. Number one, slavery is as brutal as ever. Number two, it's more vast than ever. But also thirdly, it's more stoppable than ever. So first, it's more brutal than ever, and it's as brutal as it's ever been because violence is still at the core of slavery. Uh, whatever you might have seen of 19th century slavery in the movie 12 Years a Slave, those horrible scenes, those scenes still take place today. In the case files of International Justice Mission, we have murders, mutilations, kidnappings, rapes, torture. It is brutally violent. A couple of our clients just recently had their hands chopped off because they ran away from their traffickers. So it's as brutal as it's ever been, but surprisingly it's more vast than it's ever been. I think the best estimates on the numbers come from the Global Slavery Index, which are put at slavery at more than 35 million, which is three times larger than all the slaves extracted from Africa during 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. More vast than ever. But thirdly, it is more stoppable than in any other time in human history. So why is that? For two basic reasons. Number one, throughout all of human history, slavery was really the centerpiece of global economies and it was perfectly legal. But these things are no longer true. Free market labor has prevailed as the dominant model and slavery is now against the law. These massive twin battles have been won and now it's really just for us to finish the job. And I think there actually is a best way forward. But to go forward, we have to be clear, I think, about one thing. And that is, why is there so much slavery in the world today? Because it turns out the answer is surprisingly simple. Slavery exists on a massive scale in the world today because there are huge swaths of the world where people just don't get in trouble for enslaving other people. In other words, while there are laws against slavery in every country, there are countries in which these laws are virtually completely unenforced. In South Asia, for, it, for instance, if you enslave a poor person, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to actually go to prison for that crime. This is what the world has to understand about slavery, is that it exists on a vast scale for only one reason, and that is impunity. Now, to be clear, impunity is not the only reason why slavery exists. It's the only reason slavery exists on a vast scale. Right? Slavery exists in developed countries like the United States, where actually laws are reasonably well enforced. Even here, we can and need to do better because slavery on any scale is unacceptable. Right? But impunity is not the chief explanation why tens of thousands here in the United States are in, are in slavery in our country. That's a more complicated phenomenon. But impunity is the reason why tens of millions are in slavery more largely in our world. And this, senators, is actually good news. Why? Because impunity can end. And it turns out that when impunity ends, the vast majority of slavery simply goes away. Why is that? Because the vast majority of slavery is soft crime. It's what we call crime of opportunity. You do this because you can. If you can get away with it, you enslave another person because you can make a lot of money off of it. But if you're seriously afraid of going to jail for that, you don't see it as an easy way to make money and you stop doing it. Another way to explain this is to say that slavery is, as the chairman said, a crime of opportunity, which means it's highly responsive to risk. Not all crime is like this, but slavery is. And when there's zero risk, it takes place at a very high level. But by contrast, crimes like severe social deviance, for instance, like pedophilia, 
they take place at a low level, but they're not very responsive to risk because it's compulsive behavior and you feel like you have to keep doing it and it doesn't respond even when the risk rises. Similarly, crimes of desperation. You're hungry, you have to steal bread because you think your family has to survive on that. This is more common and it's a little bit more responsive to risk, but still it's not that responsive because you feel you have to do it to survive. Slavery and other crimes of opportunity are totally different especially a discretionary economic crime like slavery. Crime of opportunity is highly responsive to risk and drops off altogether when risk becomes significant. And at IJM, we've actually been able to prove this to be true and quantitatively have measured it. We've measured trafficking fall off by more than 80% and even higher in large uh, populations when impunity ended. So then the question becomes, in countries where slavery is, th is thriving, is it possible to actually fix broken law enforcement so it actually enforces the law? And at IJM, we've also proven that this is possible. In, in countries that even have appalling track records of poor law enforcement, we've proven that it's possible to set up vetted police units that do a great job, actual fast-track courts that bring convictions, and we actually see the slavery measurably decrease. This is really hard to do and it takes a deep commitment, but it's absolutely possible. Finally, I'd like to say that many times the world gets confused about fighting slavery because almost all the slaves are poor. And so then we think that we have to eliminate poverty and ignorance in order to be able to end slavery. And so as a result, then we either give up on it because that seems impossible, or we try to harden poor people against slavery by ending their poverty and their lack of awareness. In fact, we've spent vast sums on this approach, but it has never measurably reduced slavery. Why is that? Because the traffickers simply move on to an almost infinite supply of two and a half billion other poor people who are still desperate and unaware of the threats and of the uh, schemes. And so the traffickers will go wherever they need to go to find them. We should, of course, continue to reduce vulnerability by reducing poverty and raising awareness, of course. But these strategies can't hope to prevail as long as there's an ocean of impunity. Think of malaria, for instance. 90% of all malaria deaths occur amongst the poor. And so you can think, well, we can't solve malaria until we solve poverty. In fact, you just need to stop the mosquito from biting the poor person. And it turns out you don't have to wait for poverty end in order to dramatically reduce malaria. Likewise, rather than trying to end slavery by ending poverty, which we should do for other reasons anyways, it's proven to be so much faster, cheaper, and more effective to get the traffickers to simply stop even trying to enslave others because they're afraid of going to jail. I believe it's possible like never before in history for the United States to lead in a way that is decisive in the fight against slavery by helping stand up and support a pooled fund that will combine public, private, and philanthropic resources that focus specifically on ending impunity and making sure that those who are poor are not vulnerable. Because here's what we've learned, is simply that traffickers are not brave. And currently, they walk around in countries where they are as fearful of going to jail for slavery as they are of being struck by lightning. And as long as that's the case, this will go on. But I believe US leadership can change that. And when you do that, then slavery will finally be swept into the dustbin of history where it belongs. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Thank you. Shauna? Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Menendez, and uh, 
members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I join Gary in applauding this initiative. It's great to see so many people here today attending this hearing and such a well-attended committee. Mm -hmm. So thank you for your um, focus on this issue today. I will focus my uh, testimony on the aspect of modern slavery that is in fact most prevalent, and that's forced labor. The vast majority of the almost 21 million people in forced labor today are exploited in the private economy. Trafficking for labor exploitation accounts for 70% of trafficked people. Today, instead of shackles and chains, people are now likely to be enslaved through threats, debt, and other forms of economic coercion. The face of modern slavery can be seen in the annual cotton harvest in Uzbekistan, where the government compels teachers and children to pick cotton instead of work or study. In homes in countries as diverse as Lebanon and Singapore, where women are as enslaved as domestic workers. On, const on construction sites in Saudi Arabia, where low-wage migrant construction workers from Nepal and India are trapped in a cycle of debt bondage. And in Cambodia, where young women garment workers are locked in factories, forced to work until they drop from exhaustion and fear. Understanding this link between worker rights violations and forced labor is key to eradicating the, this horrific human rights abuse globally. We see this problem as having four core root causes not currently being adequately addressed that I will lay out. They start with unsafe migration practices. Unsafe migration processes and the lack of labor law and other legal protections for migrant workers make them particularly vulnerable to forced labor. While stationed in Doha, Qatar for the Solidarity Center a few years back, I met a young man from Nepal who told me he paid a recruiter $6,000 to get a job there. He was promised a $400 a month salary and he received only $250, a portion of which was docked for food and accommodation. Deceived by the recruiter in Nepal, he was now tied to his exploitative, abusive employer by the kafala system in Qatar, and his visa remained with him, and he was not able to leave that employer. We must create an enabling environment for safe migration as a core way to reduce forced labor globally. This means, in part, finally getting serious about labor recruiters. Too many manipulate and deceive workers for profit. We need to ban recruitment fees, a primary source of debt bondage and forced labor. Promoting universally respected rights for migrant workers so they can speak up and speak out when they see abuse without fear of retaliation. And we need to reform temporary work visa programs so migrants can leave abusive employers instead of staying stuck in forced labor. And I agree with Gary, it's time to end impunity for labor traffickers. Forced labor is pervasive around the world because employers who engage in modern slavery face few consequences, neither criminal nor economic. Prosecutions for forced labor uh, globally are ridiculously low. Government's failure to hold employers criminally accountable for forced la labor means that they traffic workers with impunity. But we also need to make forced labor untenable for governments uh, to allow and for companies to get away with, including down their supply chain. Like corporations, governments also face few economic penalties or consequences for forced labor. Economic pressure and consequences are effective prevention tools and can involve carrots and sticks. For example, many countries with serious labor trafficking problems continue to receive uh, trade preferences from the United States. And Mexico, Brunei, Malaysia, and Vietnam, all parties to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP negotiations, we have a moment now 
lawmakers in the context of TPP can work with the administration to make forced labor and modern slavery an issue on the table uh, and negotiate improvements in laws and practices before any new trade agreement goes into force. Indeed, corporations often argue that it's too difficult or too expensive to monitor their entire supply chains, and they need help figuring this out. Well, I agree, but we do need to start asking why. Corporations have innovated to address quality across their supply chains. Why not the eradication of forced labor and slavery too? I think we can also promote worker-driven solutions. Workers are also key to eradicating forced labor and trafficking in supply chains. They see abuses or may themselves be exploited in a farm or on a factory. First-hand reporting of abuses and exploitation by workers, unions, and rights organizations shines a light on abusive practices long before a third party decides to take a look. With rights and protection against retaliation for exposing forced labor conditions, workers can help eradicate modern slavery. We definitely need a far more robust global response and a far more robust US government response. We need significantly greater focus and engagement to address all facets, facets of the problem, especially the root causes of forced labor. Our ultimate goal should be the prevention and of this exploitation in the first place, and that's where we should be redoubling our efforts. Last year, my colleagues in Bangladesh conducted a pre-departure training for Bangladeshis traveling to work most of them women, headed to the Gulf as domestic workers. The trainers almost matter-of-factly told these women, you should know that when you take these jobs, you will more than likely never get paid what you've been promised. You will likely be sexually harassed or worse, and you will have no access to remedy or justice. The class responded back to these trainers, you know, we know that. We're the third generation of families making this trip. We know this might be our fate, but we love our children, and we have no choice but to find a way to provide for them. Senators, no one trying to support their families or themselves should have to assume exploitation is their fate. We owe it to mothers like these and millions of other workers like them to fight with them for a world free from extreme labor exploitation that is forced labor. I look forward to discussing this with you further. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Um, uh, great testimony, and really appreciate your efforts in being here and your efforts regarding this issue. I have uh, come to believe that through Congress, we can create and, and lead a vision to, to end modern-day slavery. I really believe that. And we've had conversations with both the private sector and public sector, uh, some partners around the world. I really believe with U.S. leadership in question on many issues, that this is an issue that undoubtedly, with the U.S. behind it, uh, we can lead, we can solve, we can bring others to the table. One of the things that, that I've learned is the, that many organizations are adopting best practices, okay? And Gary, if I could, I, my staff's prepared numbers of questions, but I was able to go to the Philippines and see your work there. And uh, I will just say to the audience and the people here that uh, seeing the 22 young women that we saw that day, uh, you would have to be not a human being to sit through that uh, with your eyes. I would just like to, with my time, if you could just walk through how you go into a jurisdiction and build from the ground up the type of effort that you just talked about so that others might hear. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, it begins by where all the best information comes, and that is actually walking alongside the victims of slavery. If you don't actually get close to them and understand their experience, you just will never be able to actually serve them in a way that ends slavery. But it also means having to get to know the experience of the perpetrators, the people who do this. What will make them afraid to actually try to enslave another person? So what we do is we go and we actually begin to work cases. We work with local partners there in the ground. We raise up a local national team of investigators and lawyers and social workers, and they actually proactively go find where are the victims of slavery. Then we take those cases to the actual authorities and we do something we call collaborative casework. You actually begin to work cases with the authorities. And what you find out is what is broken in law enforcement that could actually be fixed in order to make sure that the law is enforced because it's thriving because it's not. So it requires working these cases through the system and finding where is it broken. And in that process, you make a diagnosis that isn't just about blaming, it's all about actually improving a capacity. And so what we've now seen is that you can improve the police capacity, the prosecution, the courts, and critically, the survivor care services in a way that actually bring hope. We've seen in the Philippines, for instance, measurable decreases of sex trafficking of kids by about 80% over about only a four year period of time because enforcement kicked in, but you got to actually walk alongside them with collaborative casework, begin to transform the system, and then do what we're doing now, which is making sure that the community owns and embeds that victory so that it goes on without you. And what's happened in the Philippines is success in the second largest city so inspired the government to then continue this model in Manila, the largest city, and Pampanga, another city that had the largest sex tracking of, of kids concentration outside those other two. And so what you do is you restore hope to the system and law enforcement can actually do its job. We didn't have to substantially reduce poverty in the Philippines over those four years. Other programs were getting after that and that's important in reducing their vulnerability. But we didn't have to wait for that to happen to see a nearly 80% reduction in the victimization of kids in the commercial sex trade. Is that helpful, Mr. Chairman? So the question is, I mean, as we began to look at doing something, mobilizing on a, on a global scale, um, is what you've done there, in your opinion, uh, something that can be replicated uh, in other cultures around the world where uh, slavery is just a part of the culture there? Yeah, we have no doubt about that. Um, some places will be harder than others, but you can focus on some totally winnable contexts in this country. We're working in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America, really different contexts. But one thing is certainly true. It seems like a culturally acceptable practice as long as no one gets in trouble for it. But when people start to get marched off to jail for it, everyone starts to realize, oh yeah, this is against the law, the law can actually be enforced, and I don't wanna be in this business anymore. That's a transferable concept. We've seen it now replicated due to some private financial support in South Asia that has allowed us to replicate to now uh, dozens of other organizations who can do the exact same thing. You know, you, you compared this to uh, malaria. Mm. We've had some of the same results in PEPFAR because we've continued to focus on treatment, although there's always a push, as you mentioned earlier, to sort of move out into other areas. But if you focus on treatment, 
then you have the kind of results, and we've been able to do that. This committee has been able to make sure that the focus is on treatments. One of the things that I think people would be concerned about is how do you know you're achieving the results that are laid out with an issue like this? Could you talk to us a little bit about how you set the base and how we can actually measure the results in a way that if we were to lead an effort like this, we would know that we were actually achieving results? This is absolutely critical, Senators, you think about stewarding the taxpayers' money, of making investment in the fighting against slavery. Could you actually measure that it's working? This has never been done before until the last decade where we now can go into communities and do prevalence studies. We can measure how much sex trafficking, forced labor is actually taking place by infiltrating the criminal networks who are operating and get a baseline. Then you can actually carry out your intervention and measure at a halfway point and then at the end whether or not there's actually been two things. One, an increase in the performance of the criminal justice system in enforcement and then a correlated decrease in the actual prevalence of the slavery. I don't think we should be going forward with significant investments in fighting slavery unless there's an actual measurement about whether or not those efforts are succeeding. In trying hard, no. In lots of activity, no. In training at fun days at the Sheraton, no. But did it actually measurably reduce the amount of slavery over time? That is now possible and that is the the huge development that now gives us a moment in history to actually get rid of slavery. And, and in closing, Shauna, in listening to that, I know you've had a, a tremendous amount of experience in supply chain and efforts uh, in that regard. Do you think we are at a point in time where we can uh, measure success and that these types of best practices uh, can be multiplied in other places around the world? I absolutely do, and I do um, agree that the United States has a very important role to play here. In fact, the um, agencies of the U.S. government, the departments of the U.S. government that are focused on forced labor and trafficking, woefully underfunded as they are, um, have been making some good innovations in these efforts. Um, the uh, Department of Labor's International Labor Affairs Bureau, for example, has focused more on uh, data collection and monitoring and best practices and replication. I would say that the tip office of the State Department, um, I think it is, in fact, and I can say this having looked across our, our uh, foreign assistance framework, uh, our work out of the tip office, um, underfunded and small of an effort as it is compared to what we need in the world, is one of the places where we have a very coherent uh, policy and programmatic orientation where together uh, policies and programs are directed in the service of diplomacy fighting this scourge globally and if we could bring more uh, resources to that fight I think um, that office could do a lot more as well. The, the State Department, um, the uh, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor has a role to play on root causes and identifying uh, root causes around the global migration problem. Some of the issues I discussed uh, around recruitment fees and the extreme labor exploitation and forced labor conditions of domestic workers, for example, that we see in the Gulf. And our, uh, uh, our diplomacy should be much more robust and aggressive on a tackling uh, on tackling the root causes of this very uh, difficult uh, form of modern slavery that's hard to eradicate, but is the real truth of the lives of domestic workers in dozens of countries around the world. So there are programs that work and can be replicated. And I would really um, enjoy working with the committee to uh, flesh some of those out. I could name just one really quickly. Um, in Florida, 
Uh, you'll know of the uh, program of the Co uh, Coalition of Immokalee Workers, Fair Food Program, uh, working with several international um, U.S.-based companies, has figured out a way to eradicate forced labor in tomatoes um, in, in Florida through a program jointly with uh, big, big buyers. And that's been a really successful, uh, highly regarded program. It's actually a worker-driven uh, program. It's called the Fair Food Program uh, there in Immokalee, Florida. We also had a great experience in Liberia on the Bridgestone uh, Plantation, where for, for decades we had a very bad problem with child labor. Uh, there. And with the democratic opening and the end of the Civil War in Liberia and the uh, emergence of civil society in the country, an organization formed there, the uh, Firestone Agricultural Workers Union of Liberia, they were able to work with the company to lower quotas that were causing all these children to have to work with their families in order to meet the quotas. And they lowered, through bargaining together, they lowered the quotas that were demanded of each worker. So husbands did not bring, have to bring their children and wives to help them meet these quotas. And in so doing, they created a, a new stream of funding to pay for schools on that plantation. And today, child labor has been eradicated on that plantation. It's really a success story that we could invest in and a model we could work on globally. Thank you for that full answer, and uh, I'm sorry I went over just a, a little bit. Uh, to our distinguished ranking member, thank you both again, uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, you get to go over as long as you want, as far as I'm concerned. So in any event, uh, thank, you both for <laughs> thank you both for your testimony, and more importantly, for your work. Uh, let me, I want to start with you, Mr. Haugen. Uh, basically, I heard your overarching theme is that uh, we have to end impunity mm. if we want to end slavery at the end of the day, modern day slavery. And so that to me means in addition to the infrastructure that your ministry has built in working on uh, creating uh, the access to those who are the victims of slavery, uh, bringing their stories and information to light, it means governments have to have a willingness to fight because impunity ultimately prevails if governments aren't willing ultimately to prosecute. So I heard you in response to the chairman talk about how some of the work that you've done have helped governments incline, but have you found governments that are not inclined to put a priority to the question of ending impunity in modern day slavery? And if so, how do we break through uh, with those governments? Sure. Uh, to be clear, I think in every setting where we've started, the government was disinclined to invest in this effort. So we're always up against the lack of political will. Three things have been super powerful. One is rallying the local community to actually demand that their local government do a better job. And there are heroes, local organizations, leaders that can be rallied to that, and we've seen that shift. Second, and what you do is you end up giving them a lot of the evidence and clarity about the nature of the problem. <clears throat> Secondly, international influence matters tremendously. So in countries like the Philippines and Cambodia, it mattered tremendously that this was a priority of U.S. diplomatic interaction, and we saw it become not an interest at all to the local government, to a huge interest. Third thing that is really quite interesting now is that the private sector has a powerful role to play because there are very, very large international corporations that carry exposure reputationally because they have forced labor in their supply chains. And so now they're getting a lot of proper pressure and there's things they can do 
to uh, uh, take care of it themselves. But what they also can do is to begin to turn their attention to those local governments and say, hey, we're getting all this exposure because you don't enforce these laws at all. To begin to direct that kind of influence will matter. The fourth thing that matters tremendously is actually demonstrating what's possible. A lot of what looks like a lack of political will is despair. They don't think it's possible to get the police to actually enforce the laws without corruption and with excellence. We've seen that once you put together a unit that can do that and demonstrate it's possible, people get a vision for it and things move very fast. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about creating community support, I would assume those are individuals who are not the victims of trafficking, but others in the community who are bored of the, uh, the slavery and trafficking that is taking place and try to create a change in their government. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Local organizations. And let me ask you this. What, what, what uh, can we do from your experience? What can governments and the private sector and the public sector do to increase potentials, uh, to increase protections for potential trafficking, trafficking victims during uh, conflicts, which increasingly seems to be one of our challenges? Yeah, that is, I think, the largest challenge for us is trying to address trafficking in sectors where there's no rule of law, it's a failed state, it's a conflict zone. One of the things that absolutely we can begin to do much better is what Shauna alluded to, is make sure that those who are fleeing those conflicts and our refugees, displaced people, to make sure that they are just not in floating circles of sort of lawless chaos. That there's ways to actually make sure that they are reasonably well protected and so that we look to see whether or not there's actually law enforcement that's protecting those populations and regulation of the treatment of those that are fleeing those zones. I'm not going to tell you that it's actually going to be possible to effectively enforce these anti-slavery laws in places where there's an ongoing war, but we can reduce the vulnerability of those who are displaced by it, and we can go to the places where most of the slaves are, which are not conflict zones. They're reasonably peaceful, stable countries where simply they don't actually enforce the laws against slavery. That's where the tens of millions are. Uh, Mr. Bader Blau, uh, I, I'm interested, you, you mentioned Qatar as one of your examples. Uh, in January, I sent a letter to the Secretary of State uh, with our concerns about uh, the realities of uh, forced labor and foreign labor during Qatar's uh, infrastructure projects in advance of the 2022 World Cup. And while we applaud Qatar for winning the site of the World Cup, we also know that in this lead up uh, to the dramatic infrastructure work that needs to take place, there are real challenges to some of the workers who are falling in the same type of slavery that you uh, acknowledge. So I look forward to seeing the Secretary's response uh, to that. Uh, so. You gave some pretty powerful examples of what workers themselves can do uh, as it relates to um, trying to end human trafficking and slavery, and particularly in the labor context. What, uh, what more can governments do to end forced labor uh, in the supply chain, and what more can the private sector do uh, Mr. Haugen said that there's a powerful incentive for the private sector to get right because they don't want to have their brand tarnished. Um, in a different context, I've been pursuing this with workers in Bangladesh. 
the question uh, I want to know from you, from your perspective, what can uh, the governments do to create a more powerful action uh, against the impunity? Uh, and also, what can corporations do? Thank you, and I think um, those are the key questions, really. Um, you know, if I could start with government, and if I could start with our, our own government, um, you know, looking at, you started with the example of Qatar. In fact, it's the um, entire Gulf has a problem with uh, extreme forced labor, uh, Saudi Arabia being a major uh, challenge, as well as the United Arab Emirates and Kuwait. The whole Gulf has this problem. Uh, when I spent time in the Gulf, what I found is when you talk to migrant workers, they say that their governments, where they come from, don't do anything to help them. And when you talk to the governments privately, what they tell you is, well, you know, if we tell Saudi Arabia or Qatar that we demand a uh, minimum wage of $350 a month for our construction workers, they'll just say, we won't take you, we'll take Burmese instead. And so there's a power dynamic between the wealthy countries that are importing labor and the, the home countries that view migration as an important development tool for themselves. It's a commodification, really, of the poorest people on the planet through this system. And I think the United States could actually fill a major gap here, uh, working with other uh, major um, countries to get the home and host countries together that are playing this very, very bad race to the bottom game with the lives of very, very uh, poor people around the world and say, look, stop this race to the bottom. The Burmese uh, construction workers are cheaper than the Indians, are cheaper than the Nepalese. Have a convening of the home country countries and talk about how that leads to forced labor and trafficking. I think we also really need to address this question of recruitment fees, and the United States can do so much more on this uh, question. I can't tell you how many people I have met um, in my experience who say, the reason I have to stay in this despicable working conditions I'm in, and the people we don't see that I couldn't even meet because they're trapped in a home and aren't allowed out, is because they owe tens of thousands, in some uh, cases, of dollars to recruiters. These recruiters, this recruitment agency around the world, these agencies need to be better regulated, and we need to play a bigger role in that. They operate often uh, under the radar uh, in illegal uh, manners. They are not regulated by their states. They often uh, operate with mafia-like uh, tendencies in many countries and extort money from very desperate people. Without any focus and any regulation on the recruitment industry, the chance that we are going to end this part of slavery that is debt bondage and forced labor is very, very low. So I think we could play a very serious leadership role there. In terms of corporations, I think uh, corporations are really the key since most forced labor today is in the private economy around the world. And I think the question of supply chains is a tough one. Uh, there's endless subcontracting out that happens to keep prices down. Well, the real question is, at what point um, do we say to ourselves that it's time for uh, corporations to say, yes, I agree, I would like to eradicate forced labor in my supply chain. I'm going to make this a priority, and I'm going to hold myself accountable to this. And so therefore, I'm going to uh, make the entire chain uh, transparent. I will let everyone know who our subcontractors are, and I will, as a, my, as a CEO, I will uh, guarantee that we are going to work uh, 
write directly with each subcontractor down the chain to make sure that they prove there is no forced labor and no slavery there. We've been able to achieve amazing innovations in the private sector through incredibly good focus on quality control through supply chains. I know that we can do this to end forced labor as well. And I think this committee could play a real role in that uh, regard. I think there's a lot of good examples there to be had. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Senator Risch. <clears throat> thank you very much, and thank you for your testimony. I, one uh, thing that you didn't pay much attention to, something that struck me in the years I've been on this committee and on the Intelligence Committee, is to is a condition around the world that most Americans really are unaware of and probably would be surprised at that. The United States and only a handful of other countries, bribery is not acceptable. Uh, in listening to witnesses from all over the world and talking about the issues that they have, uh, particularly when it comes to non-enforcement laws, bribery seems to be ubiquitous around the world. And uh, um, obviously, the less money there is, the more powerful money becomes. Uh, a person who wants to stay in power, be it through votes or whatever else, will ignore the rule of law in order to, in order to garner votes. And uh, it, it just... Uh, it surprises me how, ubiqui how ubiquitous it is, how acceptable it is, how in parts of the world it, it has quasi-legal status, even legal status in some parts of the world. So what, what do you do when you run into this? First of all, is this, a, is this an area of your concern? And secondly, what do you do when you run into that where, where okay, you, you've found the problem, you've identified who the people are, who the actors are, you got a law that's on the books, and like you said, there's there's uh, reluctance on the, the government's part and probably uh, uh, at least an, an, an occasion that uh, it's a result of, uh, of bribery. What do you do in that kind of a situation? First of all, how, how common is this? And then secondly, what do you do with it, uh, Mr. Hogan, first? Uh, just to affirm the senator, it's massively common. We've gone every context we've gone into, we've seen overwhelming police corruption, corruption in the criminal justice system, so it, it gets paid not to enforce the law. And it can present itself as this completely overwhelming situation. Until you adopt the perspective of the uh, enslaver or the trafficker, which is from their corruption, what do they need? A reduced probability that they won't get in trouble? No. They need certainty that they won't get in trouble. And so they make all the bribes they need to to make sure that they're safe. What happens, however, when you introduce a a vetted, trained, specialized unit that is actually enforcing the law, it is going around a rogue unit actually enforcing the law, and it completely disrupts the corruption network. Because now I'm paying money, but it's not guaranteeing me safety. And so we have seen this incredibly powerful effort, or effect really, of vetted units that can disrupt these corruption networks. So you don't have to actually clean up all the corruption you can establish some vetted, trained units that are actually enforcing the law, and it makes that perpetrator get out of the business because he can't buy certainty anymore. We've also found sort of what we call the 1570-15 rule in law enforcement. 15% show up to try to steal and hurt people every day. 15% show up trying to do the right thing. And the 70% in the middle, they're just waiting to see who's going to prevail. And when the Corrupt ones are prevailing. They're right there with the corrupt officers, and it looks like that system's 85% corrupt. But when they start, when the uh, corrupt officers start going to jail, they start uh, failing to get the jobs, and instead the promotions and the success 
and the uh, uh, rewards go to those who are actually succeeding, that 70 in the middle who wants to keep their jobs, they just scoot themselves right over. And, and that starts to very quickly look like a police department that's pretty much 85% functioning. This transformation we have seen with our own eyes in countries across cultures, and it's very encouraging. That's assuming, of course, they can't get to the people at the top that are hiring the, uh, these units that will go out there. Yes, sir. And, but that has been surprising that we have seen that in most contexts, it does not go all the way to the top. It operates at the lower levels. Uh... Yes, sir. They will not want to necessarily proactively address the patronage of people that they're protecting. But if you expose to them that this is taking place, which is what you do with, with real evidence, they will not protect those folks that are then exposing them to liability. Thank you, and um, I think we share that analysis. I maybe would add one piece um, on, in terms of forced labor and the connection to bribery. I was mentioning uh, the recruiters. There are many uh, governments around the world that are um, trying to experiment with uh, getting rid of the market for illegal recruiters um, uh, by regulating it and, and owning it, basically running, running the market through direct, direct, government-to-government uh, -government recruiting. Uh, running the industry rather than leaving it to these very diverse um, and unregulated markets um, that are run by sort of illegal mafias and also thrive on bribery, corruption, uh, and gangs. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank you all very much for, for your work. In my work with the Helsinki Commission and the OSCE, trafficking has always been a very, very high priority. And I think one of the most impressive visits I've done is to visit uh, victim centers in countries because it shows an awareness that the community understands that those who have been trafficked are victims and that if you need to get papers in order to be legal, you have a resource you can go to and escape the person who's trafficked you. So I just point out that uh, there are ways to counter this and that we should be looking at it. One of the great achievements uh, in dealing with trafficking in the United States was the TIP report, Trafficking in Persons report. It wasn't easy to convince uh, the State Department that they needed to be engaged. Now they are very proud of the work that we do in the trafficking and TIP report. I, whenever I have a uh, uh, an ambassador from another country or a foreign minister in my office, I always have the tip report and always go over trafficking with them in ways that they can improve in trafficking because it's not just the origin country or even the destination countries, transit countries. So there's different areas that you can stop the trafficking. If you, in a war zone is one of the three, there are other areas that can help us prevent that type of trafficking. My first question is, how can we improve the TIP report to deal with your concerns? Uh, I know countries don't want to be on the Tier 2 watch list, or certainly not the Tier 3, but there's waiver authority, and there's concern as to whether we can make the TIP reports even more effective, particularly dealing with trafficking and forced labor. Well, first of all, Senator, I want to thank you for carrying the TIP report around. It's a, kind of a stinky document to carry around the world, but it is unbelievably powerful. Uh, because 
Governments don't want accountability and transparency for the reality within their country in this horrible crime. And yet there is nothing really like it in the world in terms of ratcheting up the pressure. I have seen governments going from not caring at all to running in a hurry to address the problem and actually changing law enforcement to, to, to respond. I think what the TIP report primarily needs is just enhanced stature and support from the whole US government to say this is not a document we're ashamed of, this is not a, a, a little office at the State Department that we're barely gonna mention. In fact, we've been actually saying you ought to uh, allow the TIP office to become a, a full bureau so it's in the important conversations at the table where a lot of the political decisions about where the pressure is going to be applied and not uh, take place and they're not actually in the room. <clears throat> but I think strengthening the political stature of this as a priority for us is what is going to make the difference. Because the, the TIP report has, I think, all just about all the information that it needs. It can be strengthened on, on performance measurements of the criminal justice system, I think. But that is extraordinarily strong. And what mostly needs to happen is just the, <clears throat> the stature with which our diplomatic interactions uh, bring uh, strength to bear on behalf of it. Thank you for the question, and, and thank you and um, uh, all the senators on this committee for the focus on the TIP report. It is a really important report. As a human rights activist, I would say I find the uh, TIP report and associated U.S. diplomacy to be the, have the highest potential for impact on human rights and anything we do in our U.S. foreign policy. And I've actually seen that on the ground. I've seen the TIP report when we focus a di diplomatic effort behind the tier rankings and match it with uh, adequate program and support on the ground, make a real impact in the lives of, of average people. It's a very important report. I think, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, for us, how uh, the TIP office could be more effective, certainly with more resources, um, right now they are uh, small enough that they have to really focus interventions. You know, they've got that really amazing report that covers the whole globe with fantastic suggestions at, at eradicating forced labor and modern slavery and uh, for every country in the world, and they don't have the resources to do it all. It means that they have to triage each year and do very little uh, work compared to what they have the capacity for. So I think that would help. Let me go to your point that you raised on transparency in the supply chain. Uh, we looked at voluntary ways to get more transparency in different areas. The, in extractive industries, we have the EITI, which is a voluntary way countries can come together to disclose their uh, energy uh, mineral contracts so that we can trace money that otherwise could go for corruption. We can go to help the country itself. Uh, we found that to be helpful, but not enough. So in the Congress, we've passed a transparency bill known as Cardin-Lugar that requires mandatory SEC filings on, from extractive industries. What, have, what would you recommend in regards to transparency in the supply chain dealing with forced labor? Do we need uh, a mandatory reporting requirement in the United States? Hopefully that would then be picked up by other countries so we can get a more comprehensive way or are you to believe that we can develop the protocols um, voluntarily within the business community uh, in this regard? Uh, Senator Cardin, thank you. I am uh, not a fan of voluntary reporting when it comes to something as uh, vile as slavery and forced labor. I think it's not too much to ask and believe that we can come up with a man mandatory reporting, and I do believe that legislation would help with that. 
and I assume that the United States is going to have to lead here. We don't do it. Other countries will not take the initiative. The United States absolutely must take the lead on this. My last question deals with the opportunities under the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. You've all mentioned that. Malaysia is one of the TPP aspirants there uh, on Tier 3 on the TIP report. Uh, what would you expect us to be able to accomplish in the successful TPP negotiations as it relates to uh, uh, trafficking? Go ahead. Um, well, I believe that, um, thankfully, we have this very strong set of recommendations in the TIP report for um, Malaysia, for example. I think that we should take that like a handbook when uh, working on this new trade agreement before we lose the leverage of extending the trade agreement to work with the government of Malaysia to make the changes that are needed and laid out in that TIP report. You know, for example, we work in Malaysia, and since the Tier 3 uh, ranking came out, we've seen on the ground very little coming out of the government change in terms of changes. They're not, they are not increasing prosecutions, they are not going after the bad actors, uh, and they are not rescuing uh, victims from forced labor. I don't think we should let this go. I think we should work a little harder on that, and I think we should uh, ask for uh, changes in advance of turning over our leverage in the TPP. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and thanks for your leadership on this issue the entire time you've been in Congress and for being here today. Absolutely. Uh, Senator Isaacson. I want to follow up on Senator Cardin's point because it's, and, and your response. You know, we found in Africa, <clears throat> with the Millennium Challenge Corporation and the monies that are invested in Africa, we conditioned a lot of those investments based on a lessening of corruption and improvement in later standards, and we have, in some cases, put, taken countries out of those programs because they wouldn't co cooperate. When we do the TPP, one of the main things we want to do is use the leverage of these countries wanting to do business with the United States to have incremental improvements in the way they treat their laborers and, and a total disregard for human trafficking. Would you agree with that? Um, I, I believe that before we negotiated TPP, if we put this all hard on the table, they want that agreement really badly, and I think we can use this time to say before we finish this agreement, we want to see some real steps, some real changes. We have experiences with other um, negotiations related to trade that the incremental approach sometimes just means incremental is, is 15 or 20 years. And I think with such an extreme case like forced labor and trafficking, I think it's not too much to ask that we see real significant changes in policies and practices before uh, we finish the negotiations. And we found incremental is acceptable as long as when they violate an increment, you may have, there's a punishment for it and they actually realize there's a consequence. I mean, that's the other issue is that whether or not it's before or after, at some point we also need to monitor and enforce. And the ongoing uh, resources for the TIP office, the State Department, ILAB, and even USAID that's now uh, trying to work across the agency to mainstream um, TIP through its TIP policy, uh, more resources to these agencies will help monitor over time. I think that's a really important point. I read your story in your testimony about the Indian woman who hired a recruiter 20 years ago to find her a job, and the recruiter found her a job in Kuwait City. She and her husband followed the recruiter to Kuwait City, and I've read it, if I read it correctly, the University of Kuwait hired her, and she's been she for two years washed towels in the women's dormitory of the University of Kuwait, was never allowed out of the building where she washed those towels, and was not allowed to see her husband. 
And it occurred to me that I know traffickers take advantage of poverty and they take advantage of, of weakness and illness. Are they also taking advantage of the treatment of women under Sharia law or in Islamic states where women are a second-class citizen by virtue of that religion? Because Kuwait City, with its great university, you would think a, a, as an employer, the university would do everything to have equality for the women, but to, put, to actually be employing the woman in a substandard job and almost holding her as a slave was, is, is it the religion a part of that? Is it the cultural? What, what is it? In, in some ways, I wish it were as easy as cultural, because then we could say it would be worse in one place or another. But the reality is the condition, particularly of domestic workers in most parts of the world, is just that. And that includes countries of all different um, religious and ethnic uh, backgrounds. Um, we see this problem from Southeast Asia, across China, in the Middle East and beyond. The problem is really that uh, when people employ domestic workers, they view them as uh, people that they can lock away in the house that no one's even going to see and are at their beck and call. There's no regulation of their work. They're not even seen as, they're not covered by labor laws. And uh, it's, it's painfully common that uh, forced labor is present in the domestic uh, worker arena. And I would say, though, that what is common is that the majority of domestic workers around the world are women. Right. And I do think that there's a common gender inequality issue that affects uh, the forced labor of women in the domestic, um, in domestic work. May I add a word on that, Senator, which is simply to say there are variations on cultural attitudes about treatment of women and treatment of the poor, but all these countries have put in law that slavery is not permitted. And the question is, are they simply enforcing the cultural norm they've actually already embedded in the law? And the answer is no. But we can now powerfully move countries to actually enforce the cultural norm in law. And for most slaves, that will end slavery for them. Following up on, since you were talking, I'll follow up with one question I have for you. Every golf cap I've bought in the last 25 years was made in Bangladesh. We've seen a tremendous movement of textiles to Asia and the Pacific region. How are our companies in America doing in terms of holding producers of those products to a higher standard in terms of their labor laws in those companies? How are U.S.? How are, how are U.S. companies who retail those products? Are there any, are U.S. companies showing, shining a light on better treatment for those workers and trying to avoid doing business with people who are actually holding people in slavery or I think definitely when the United States treats its workers well, it raises the bar. But I'm talking about in the terms of in the workers in the country where the cap baseball caps are made, for example. Yeah. If an American company buys them and trademarks them with their trademark on them, do you see evidence of United States companies putting a standard of excellence or a standard of behavior on those, on those countries in terms of their labor laws? Yes, we do. Um, that because that's part of their supply chain, they carry with them exposure for abuses that take place in that uh, supply chain. And as consumers increasingly care about that, we are starting to see it bump up to the very actually top of boardroom discussions that that exposure exists. And, and it, it now has the opportunity to then leverage influence in those countries to actually enforce the laws against those abuses. That's the point I wanted, Mr. Yes. Mr. Chairman, I wanted to make that point because he's in a conversation with a ranking member, but I wanted to make that point for this reason. Senator Coons and I went to South Africa two years ago and toured some textile finishing plants that were finishing products for sale in the United States of America. And the companies, and I'm not going to get into names, but the companies that were buying the, the, 
the finished product from those, we're requiring standards of better treatment of their workers, and we're using that as a marketing tool in the United States for the product they were selling. And that's where you take the paradigm of taking advantage of poverty away and take advantage of excellence in marketing. And I, so I think it, that's a good point to continue to make. Yes, sir. Thank you. If, um, if you have examples like that, I think we should raise them up. I think that's more the exception than the norm. And the truth is, I think we've seen a real mixed record on um, uh, companies taking responsibility for uh, behavior down their supply chains. Uh, we see often more distancing than uh, accountability. Um, and I think that's one of the problems we need to solve. I'll get you some good information after the meeting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you uh, for your time and testimony today. Uh, before this hearing, I had an opportunity to visit with the Colorado Organization for Victims Assistance. I met with them back in, in Colorado and, and uh, had follow-up with them prior to this hearing, just to talk about some of the things that we see, that we hear, that we face in Colorado and our states. And in some of the, some of the information they sent, some of the articles, some of the studies that they had reported, it talked about how when it comes to human trafficking issues, this issue of modern-day slavery, uh, that many of the victims and many of the foreign national trafficking victims that have been assisted by the Colorado Organization for Victims Assistance come to this country legally with guest worker visas. Is, is, that, is that true? So we're not really talking about like somebody who who's hasn't come to this country uh, illegally, who's snuck through the cracks, somehow, slept through, gotten through the cracks somehow, and isn't accounted for, but is somebody that we know through the process. Is that the case around the world as well? Um, in, our, uh, in our estimation, for the most part, yes. Uh, people do uh, migrate on legal visas um, to go from Nepal to Saudi Arabia uh, for, as a very poor person uh, without a lot of money to buy that ticket and figure out the visa. No, they, they have a broker. They help them get um, into the country legally. The problem is, uh, the visa program itself, the visa they come in on ties them to an employer, and there's no regulation about what happens before they leave. So if they've had to do if they've had to pay six, eight thousand dollars illegally uh, to a broker that they're now indebted to, sold their house, this is very common. Um, and then they go to a country where they are on a legal visa program, but then something happens. The employer, because of lack of enforcement, doesn't pay what they are owed. They are trapped in debt bondage, and this is incredibly common. And I think one of the challenges that we have as policymakers, as leaders in this effort to combat this, I think a lot of people think that this may be related to immigration when it's not. I mean, this is actually just, as, as, you know, in terms of documents or, or visas, that's not the issue. The issue is how people are treating and how we're holding people accountable. There's a story that they shared about a, a, two brothers from Peru who came to Colorado who were working on a, a sheep ranch, western Colorado, and it talked about how they, they were treated, how they were abused, how they had been uh, passports withheld, uh, and it talks about how they escaped. It talks about this very telling story, this very emotional story about how they were able to escape. Uh, and what they did and the fear that they lived under and who they went to for, for assistance, not knowing whether their employer was going to find them and, and trap them back into uh, this, uh, this great tragedy again. Are we doing enough in the United States to hold those employers accountable, to make examples when this is reported? Are we doing enough so that when we talk to other nations, when we enter into agreements, that they can look at us without hypocrisy, knowing that we have done everything we've said we want them to do. Are we doing enough? 
If I could just respond, <clears throat> you have a critical insight here because it's absolutely true that the vast majority of slaves in the world are citizens within their own country. Yes, moving populations and immigration is one of those vulnerability factors, but most slaves, most of this 30 million or more slaves are citizens within their own country. So the United States will not be able to have as effective a leadership role in helping other countries in that regard if it's not doing what it can within its own country to make sure it's enforcing laws to protect the basic rights of workers here within our own borders and holding companies accountable that violate those laws. Go ahead. I'll just quickly agree and say within our own um, guest worker visa programs, there are lots of gaps in terms of making sure that people are not coming into these programs indebted before they come, that once they come, if they face uh, exploitation or abuse, that they're able to, without retaliation, uh, raise uh, unsafe working conditions or harmful employment conditions, um, and their ability to do that is very limited, and, and also being tied to employers is still a problem in the United States. And there's been things like the Polaris Project, which uh, up until this past year had Colorado ranked very low in terms of its laws and protections that it was providing to workers. But as a result of changes made by the state legislature, this past year ranked it in the top tier. In fact, one of the states with the best uh, laws to, to protect people. Um, when we look around the globe, though, are we able to, uh, to see those kinds of changes being made in a way that we, we Colorado had a law basically on the books that stated, uh, you know, laws against trafficking, trafficking in children statute. They had that on the on the books, but uh, the courts interpreted it in such a way that uh, the the person had to literally own a child victim and transfer ownership in order for them to be convicted under the statute. Now that statute has been changed. Do we see those same kinds of legal uh, loopholes or problems around the globe that are allowing people to get off the hook? We have reviewed the laws in scores of countries where we're operating, and there are sort of technical difficulties, uh, think improvements that can be made, but overwhelmingly, the reason there, there are tens of millions of people in slavery is not because the legal scheme is inadequate, it's that the enforcement mechanism is not even attempted to be leveraged. So this is our point of focus. And when you focus on enforcement, you do end up finding, oh, here's the hiccup in the law that needs to be ad uh, addressed for us to comprehensively do this. But right now, the thing we have to wrap our minds around is that you are at greater risk of being struck by lightning than you are of actually going to jail for these crimes mm -hmm. in the countries that have the most slaves. Mm -hmm. And are, oh, sorry, please. I would say in, in my experience, particularly in the Middle Eastern countries where I've worked and, and witnessed this issue, you know, even in a country with very weak rule of law and no focus on human rights, you can take a Saudi Arabia, um, you're, you're not allowed to not pay workers. I mean, and the biggest uh, incidents of forced labor you see in a country like Saudi Arabia are employers that literally do not pay workers and force them to work for months and months and sometimes years on end. It's illegal under even Saudi law, and they're not uh, held accountable. And how are we doing in terms of coordination with local law enforcement, state law enforcement? I mean, in terms of the laws, international uh, organizations, associations, how are we doing with the, that coordination to make sure that we have the communication available uh, to prevent this? I think this is getting much, much better. We've been at this for almost 20 years now. And here in the United States, you've seen, because of the political will expressed uh, um, uh, now to address it, 
the coordination of law enforcement is making it harder and harder and harder for traffickers to get away with what they're doing. But it requires sustained attention, that's the thing, because it, it preys upon those who are politically the weakest. So it requires those of us who have more political influence just to make sure that law enforcement is prioritizing these things continuously. Because as soon as we take our, our gaze off of it, the traffickers will come right back in. And, and I would just say that I think we could do a lot better. I think that we do have laws on the books that are supposed to prevent the importation of goods that are made with forced labor and child labor. They're not enforced adequately. There's not enough inspection. Uh, there was a recently a, uh, you may have seen it in December, the Los Angeles Times wrote, I think, a five-part series on a forced labor in um, Mexico in agriculture. Um, and traced, the, the reporters chased the supply chain all the way back up to U.S. supermarkets on a shoestring budget um, and uh, found endemic forced labor in agriculture in Mexico. Um, you know, these goods are made with forced labor and child labor. Young, young girls as young as 12 years old, um, you know, picking chilies off plants that end up in our supermarkets. We should enforce these laws and make sure that doesn't happen. Can I just add on the data that we've seen in the fight against terrorism to actually bring intelligence together coherently and to mine it and to apply analytics that allow you to chase down where the bad guys are? Those same tools could be applied to the fight against slavery, but we're going to need a coordinated international effort, a fusion of data by which that crime fighting can actually take place. And that's possible now if we uh, come together with the resources to build such a capacity. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. At the outset, let me congratulate you for the title, Ending Modern Slavery. That's exactly what it is. I have no problem with the term trafficking, except I think it sometimes sanitizes what we're talking about. Trafficking makes it sound like people are just being moved around from point A to point B. It's not the moving around as much as what happens once they get there. And I think modern slavery uh, accurately assesses it. To that point, we have an ambassador at large for trafficking in persons. It should be an ambassador at large for ending human slavery or modern slavery that, um, that has set vacant for a number of, 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 for quite a period of time. I hope that there'll be a nomination and that we can get that confirmed because I think that's important in terms of the U.S.'s role around the world on this issue. I wanted to touch on two subjects. The first is, we hadn't touched on this yet, but let me ask you this. There's also been reports of abuses in the diplomatic corps here in the United States. Um, do you have any unique insight into some of those abuses and how they've used their diplomatic status to, to bring, in some instances we've seen here in Washington, to see domestic workers that are actually being not compensated and held against their will? Uh, just to say, I think it's a manifestation of the, the basic phenomena, which is at the highest levels, this is not taken seriously as a crime, as a horror, and as something in which actual consequences must be brought to bear. And as long as it is seen that well, wink, wink, you know, if you have the right place, if you have the right power, you can get away with this. That's what happens in the countries where the vast majority of slaves are. The people of power, of influence, they get away with it on a vast scale. But what law brings so beautifully is equal protection of the law, to say that the poorest and the richest by the law are on the same playing field. And that's the opportunity we have now, is to see that these laws are actually enforced. Nothing makes that look more ridiculous than uh, when you have these diplomatic abuses. Thank you for the, the question. We think it's really um, uh, horrific abuses we're seeing in the diplomatic uh, corps. And I agree with Gary, it's, it's um, pretty vile practice. We, we understand 
Um, however, there hasn't been a, a, a tough enough reaction um, on the part of our own government to these abuses in the diplomatic corps. And sometimes it's because we have sensitive relationships with uh, the governments in question. And that happens, as you know, with the, the tier rankings and the TIP report on occasion as well. You know, the extent to which we can delink uh, some of our um, more difficult diplomatic relationships with countries from the actual holding account to a law would be better. We understand uh, now it, it may be the case that um, that domestic workers from India will be allowed to come in again um, to join the diplomatic corps under a different visa category, um, and I think that would be something to look into. And I, I, one of the, I know that uh, sex trafficking and sex slavery gets a lot of attention, and rightfully so. I want to talk about that. I, I point out that it's the labor uh, slavery that really is still the predominant number, and it, it can happen anywhere. I mean, people would be shocked at how prevalent it is here domestically. I wanted to ask you domestically for a moment in the U.S. about three topics. The first is on the sex slavery side. Do you have any sort of insight about how many, particularly women, but even children, obviously women, let me focus on that first, the adult women who are in the trade now uh, could be considered people that are being trafficked and or held against their will? I, I, it's my personal view that virtually all of them are to one way or another because coercion isn't necessarily someone holding a gun to your head or someone refusing to pay you, but things like drug addiction are used as a tool, things like fear of escape, even psychologically. Um, it's been my experience in the interaction I've had with law enforcement involved in this that you should consider virtually uh, every woman uh, that's, that in that industry as being uh, a, a victim of, of slavery, basically. I would just say that there are, you know, disagreements uh, about this of what constitutes coercion and so forth. One of the things we do know is that if you're a minor, you cannot consent to this kind of abuse. Right. And yet you can find plenty of minors there if you prioritize this as a proactive criminal investigative matter. And you can secondly find straight up violence and the evidence of it and clarity of it that also makes it clearly an act of coercion and an act and a criminal act. So yes, there is place ob obviously for uh, some disagreement. But the sad part is where there is no disagreement, but there's also not adequate enforcement of the law. And this just needs to be a priority for us, community by community. Well, the reason why I ask you this, and I wanted you to comment this as well, Ms. Blau, there are publications in the United States that openly advertise on their pages for these services. And in fact, the same publications like the Village Voice that have gone on to write articles ridiculing this whole notion that there are humans, that there's human slavery in the United States, that there's slavery in the United States with regards to the sex trade. And there's been all sorts of actions taken here to condemn that. And the reason why I ask you that question is because oftentimes when law enforcement interacts, for example, with women that are, being, that are in prostitution and, and have, in my opinion, been coerced into it either through drug addiction, abuse, or a combination thereof, there's a debate within the law enforcement community about whether they should be treated as perpetrators or as victims. And we've had this debate in Florida as well. When you interact with someone that you basically have found at a brothel or in some instances some of these massage parlors and so forth, uh, the debate has been should we arrest them and put them in jail and treat them as a perpetrator or should we pull them out of that environment, put them into a safe place so they can realize that there is an escape for them and they can break that, that pattern. And we've gotten a lot of pushback from both law enforcement and prosecutorial agencies who, want, who believe that it is important to treat them as a perpetrator first, that that is the only way you're ever going to get them to see differently. Do you have an opinion on the right way to address that? Because it's, it's an issue of controversy in, in the law enforcement community. State a clear preference that the preference and better law enforcement way to approach this is to actually treat them as victims. You will get their cooperation. You'll be able to get behind the real criminal networks and activities that are behind it. And I do think, um, from my own law enforcement experience, it's 
uh, a bit of a sloppy excuse to pretend that that's not possible. I think we need a very um, robust program of training uh, law enforcement on this issue. And it's not just in the United States, it's globally. We, we've had programs that we've done in other countries, Indonesia and other places, where we've worked with law enforcement to identify uh, uh, people that otherwise look, according to the laws, as they're perpetrating a law, to uh, a, viol a violation of a law. Um, such as in, in the commercial sex industry, to identify them as victims by asking them questions. How did you get here? Where did you come from? How old are you? The truth is I um, believe that many cases of, uh, of uh, labor trafficking originally end up in sex trafficking. And we find that if law enforcement can actually be trained on talking to people and understanding where they come from, that we can get more prosecutions and we can really focus our ire where it, it, it belongs on the traffickers and not the victims. I know I'm out of time. In your experience, the majority of people from abroad that are here in the commercial sex industry, did they know they were coming to that industry when they were brought? I don't have a particular stat on that. Okay. In my experience, their uh, uh, majority are victims of uh, coercion and fraud. False pretense. They thought they were coming here to uh, make a commercial product, and they ended up in, trapped in this industry. Correct. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Y'all have been outstanding witnesses. And uh, in my opening comments, I mentioned Congress. But I think because of your efforts and so many advocates uh, around our country, uh, the administration, too, I think, is very focused on this. I know Secretary Kerry recently uh, referred to an effort, a much more robust effort. So I think this is something that uh, we can all work on together in a very positive way. And I want to thank you both for a lifetime of effort in this regard, for being here today, for sharing your experiences, and for working with us in the future. Thank you very much. And now we'll have the second panel. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sorry, Mr. Chairman. They were just out in the hall doing an interview with CNN, so they're just at the okay. back waiting for the, the there you go. them to clear, and they'll be right in. Yeah. I told them they had to mention your name, Mr. Chairman, and no, no, Senator no. Menendez, if they were going to do this interview during the hearing, but I don't know if that happened. They get mentioned enough. Thank you. So That's a former congressional staffer. <laughs> yeah. We'll now turn to our witnesses for the second panel. Thank you for being here. Our first witness is Mr. James Kofi Annan. In two, 2013, he was awarded the World's Children Prize for his work to stop child slavery. He himself was a fishing slave as a child for seven years. He managed to escape, get an education, become a bank manager. In 2007, he left the bank to work solely to stop child slavery. At that time, he had already started an organization called Challenging Heights. 
in 2003, which had liberated over 500 children from slavery. Liberated slave children come first to Challenging Heights Safe Home for 65 children. Challenging Heights also runs a school for 700 pupils of different ages. They offer training to poor mothers so that they can support their families and do not have to sell their children into slavery. He has supported over 10,000 children who have been slaves or are at risk for slavery. Thank you for being here. Our second witness is Chandra Woworuntu. Thank you, Chandra. The founder of a nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering human trafficking slave uh, survivors through mentorship and job training. She graduated from college with a major in finance and bank manage, management in her native Indonesia. After graduation, she became the manager of the Treasury Department of the Korea Exchange Bank in Indonesia, specializing in money market trading. When political turbulence erupted, she lost her job because of economic, religious, and racial persecution. She applied for a job that promised a six-month position in the hotel industry in Chicago which led her to become and survive being a victim of criminal human trafficking organization. Thank you again for being here today. Our witness, our next witness is David Abramowitz. Uh, he is Vice President of Policy at the gov uh, and Government Relations at Humanity United, a foundation that focuses on advancing human freedom by combating human trafficking and modern slavery, among other human rights issues. Previously served as Department of State's Office of Legal Advisor. In 1999, he joined the staff of the Committee on Foreign Affairs for the House of Representatives and served as Chief Counsel. Over the next 10 years, he's worked on such legislation as the Victims of Trafficking and Violence Act of 2000 and the William Wilberforce Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2008. You're definitely a former member of a staff here, among many others. And with that, we will recognize uh, James Kofi Annan, if you would begin and just go in order. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Chairman Coca, uh, Senator Hernandez, and other members of the committee for holding this important hearing. I am the founder of Challenging Heights, an organization that for 10 years has served children who have been trafficked into modern slavery in Ghana. We deliver social justice interventions to children, women, and underserved communities in coastal and farming communities. Our work includes rescue, rehabilitation, and reintegration of children who have been trafficked in the fishing industry. And we also raise awareness of trafficking in communities to prevent trafficking and re-trafficking of children. In fishing communities along the Volta Lake, Ghanaian children are being sold into life of forced labor malnutrition, abuse, and no schooling. Traffickers prey on poor families in communities along the country's coast. Typically, families are told by their traffickers that if they let their children come to the lake, they would live with relatives who would care for them and send them to school in exchange for a few hours of work after school. In reality, the children are forced to work along long hours on the boat and dangerous conditions. A typical day might begin at 3 a.m. and end at 8 p.m. and include challenging tasks such as casting net, diving, hauling, with only one meal saved. Children often get stuck in the nets at the bottom of the lake as a result of unsafe diving. If a child is caught escaping, the consequences can be brutal. 
often the families do not hear from their children again. I formed Challenging Heights because I was a victim of this slavery situation myself. I was forced to work in the fishing boat on Lake Volta as a young boy. I understood the challenge of surviving such a trauma, and I also saw the tremendous potential to change things in my country, to prevent child labor, to rescue children from slavery, and to give those survivors a chance for a good life. Our organization supports hundreds of children and their families each year. We help prevent trafficking by helping vulnerable children to go to school, by creating awareness, building communities' capacity to stand up against trafficking. We also have a survivors' rehabilitation center and a child trafficking survivor support network aimed at providing protection for children. I am very proud of my organization's accomplishment, but I know that there is so much more we need to do to stop trafficking in Ghana and throughout Africa. The United States government plays an important role in this direction. The U.S. State Department Trafficking Persons Report issued each year is a useful tool for Ghana and other governments, helping to keep them accountable for continued to do better work to stop trafficking. Each year, I contribute to the report so it reflects the most up-to-date reality facing trafficking survivors in Ghana. And uh, just a couple of days ago, I was uh, sent the information to start making my input. I host U.S. government officials showing them firsthand the dire situation facing children at risk of exploitation. The United States diplomatic pressure is very important in helping to persuade the government of Ghana to act. It is critical that these efforts continue and are properly funded. In particular, we would like to see a renewal of commitment to the National Plan of Action the government itself has created, and money allocated to the Human Trafficking Board released for immediate use. The Department of Labor's Bureau of International Labor Affairs also plays an important role in combating trafficking in Ghana and other countries. First, it conducts research on international labor, forced labor, and human trafficking, and publishes very valuable reports that help hold countries accountable. The Bureau funds projects for organizations engaged in effort to eliminate exploitative child labor around the world. And lastly, it assists in the development and implementation of U.S. government policy on international labor, forced labor, and human trafficking issues. This important bureau must retain its resources and expertise to address the most intractable forms of child labor and exploitation. I urge Congress to consider legislation that would secure permanent resources for ILAP and insulate it from political shifts. I also believe that the U.S. government can improve implementation of its development programs, whether it is building a school, constructing a highway, or distributing food aid, the U.S. government must integrate strategies for preventing, identifying, and responding to trafficking. It is especially important that the development programs fund projects that focus on prevention of slavery. And I will specifically cite the example of the Millennium uh, Challenge account, where we believe that can be tied to some of these 
um, issues of slavery. Ideally, the government should target resources towards grassroots organizations as Ghanaians themselves and those in other countries struggling to end human trafficking are the only ones who can do the difficult work of changing attitudes in their own countries. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Um, that's what we'll run to. Thank you, Chairman Coker, Senator Menendez, and other members of the Foreign Relation Committee for holding this hearing today. I'm an advocate, a survivor of human trafficking, and the founder of Mentari, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing human trafficking survivors with mentorship and job training to help them rebuild their lives. In my native Indonesia, I was college educated, financial analyst employed by International Bank. I lost my job on 1998 because of political turbulence, fell out. So I expanded the job to United States and after I responding the advertisement for job in a hotel, Chicago, I check my legal document, pay 3,000 recruitment fee, accepted to the position, and I flew to New York City. I entered to the United States lawfully on non-immigrant visa arranged to the recruitment agency that brought me here. I was picked at the airport with five other women, and soon our passport were forcibly taken and our lives threatened and the situation become clear. We were being trafficked into sex trade and they asked me to pay 30,000 US dollars to be free. I managed to escape and I cooperated with law enforcement to successfully prosecute my trafficker and we rescued many girls. It was hard for me to survive because there were not many services available to help me. Safe Horizon New York assisted me to stay legally in the United States. I believe to end human trafficking globally, the United States government needs to focus on prevention and strengthening policies to prosecute the traffickers and to provide victims with stable and sustainable support. And I also believe that policymakers should listen to the voices and opinions of survivors of human trafficking, and I thank you for doing that today. One of the best ways to prevent human trafficking is through education and awareness. I urge Congress to invest in supporting and encouraging countries to implement programs that will make people more aware and will help them question whether a job opportunity is legitimate or the work of criminal labor recruiter like the one I met in Indonesia. So labor recruiters and contractors are directly involved in the trafficking and exploitation of workers around the world. 
Korab recruiters make false promises about the job and charge workers high recruitment fees that force workers to stay in abusive or exploitive working conditions under debt bondage. Mr. Chairman, last year Congress considered but didn't pass the fraudulent offices recruitment and trafficking elimination of Forte Act of 2013, I urge you to support introduction and passage of similar legislation this year. This would require that workers coming to United States receive accurate information about the job and working condition they are being overt and would also ensure that workers do not have to pay recruitment fee. Other important step of U.S. government can take to prevent human trafficking is to demand transparency in supply chains for products that are sold in United States. California passed legislation that requires companies to publicly disclose their effort. If any, they are taking to ensure their supply chains do not include forced labor. Congress should support supply chain transparency on federal level, and Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney has introduced the Business Supply Chain Transparency on Human Trafficking and Slavery Act in the House to achieve this goal. I also urge Congress to strengthen the United States' role in developing a shared global foreign policy to prosecute the traffickers. Building our capacity to conduct inter-country investigation and prosecution should be high priority in that effort. Mr. Chairman, I want also to ask today for your support for Senate Companion to HR 500, the Survivors of Human Trafficking Empowerment Act. This bill will create a survivor-led U.S. Advisory Council on Human Trafficking to review federal government policy programs on human trafficking. And it's also important that survivors play a role in finding solutions to end modern slavery. This proposed legislation is a great step forward. I want to close by saying something about human trafficking survivors. It is very difficult for survivors to recover from such terrible experience. It is a challenging when you are in the country where you don't speak the language and have little or no support. I hope U.S. government will recognize the need to provide sustainable support for survivors, including long-term support to help survivors receive training and, uh, and opportunities to gain employment. I believe United States can and should be a leader in demonstrating the best practice to the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Abramowitz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you uh, Mr. Menendez, Mr. Chairman, and members of the committee for holding this very important hearing, and thanks for the opportunity to testify today. Mr. Chairman, Humanity United combats modern slavery by building effective networks, engaging the private sector, and strengthening the anti-slavery advocacy movement. 
including support for the alliance to end slavery and trafficking. Mr. Chairman, as you said, with two-thirds or more of the profits for modern slavery coming from sex trafficking and two-thirds of the victims subject to labor trafficking, we must work urgently to combat human trafficking in all its forms. Each of the victims, Mr. Chairman, deserves to become a survivor, and I feel privileged to be testifying alongside two of them today. And I think the kind of testimony and experiences they can bring demonstrate why the legislation that Ms. Wawontu just mentioned on having a Survivor Advisory Council is very important so that the executive branch could really hear in a very specific way from survivors moving forward. Mr. Chairman, turning to more specific solutions, I first want to focus on foreign labor recruiters. A lot has been said about that. We heard a lot about it from the last panel as, uh, as well as the, the panel here. Um, and we talk in my testimony about the whole system of foreign labor recruiting, including corruption, which I think Senator Rich was very correct in terms of identifying that as a, as a key issue. But there are a number of ways that we can address it. First is having these issues come out more in the open and having a more frank discussion. The TIP report was mentioned in earlier and also in the testimony of my fellow panelists. It can really bring a, a lot of information to light. It can help identify which countries are the key countries that need to be focused on. It can analyze the commitment of those governments to trying to end human trafficking where perhaps more pressure needs to be pre-brought. And it also points out sensible solutions. But this report is only as valuable as it is accurate. And as Senator Rubio pointed out, we've had a, a vacancy in the TIP ambassador slot. We're about to start report season where the information that James and others are going to provide are going to start to be looked at. And I'm very worried that if we don't have someone in that position, then those who want to downplay abuses in certain countries are likely to be uh, successful and, and we won't have a report that has as much integrity. And I'd ask unanimous consent that a piece that I just wrote uh, on the Hill on this matter, which lays out certain criteria, be put in the record. Uh, second, um, Mr. Chairman, governments can require greater transparency and regulate foreign labor recruiters. Uh, the Forte Act that Chandra just mentioned is very important. It lays out transparency, bans fees, and creates a regulatory structure. And we also have the Executive Order 13627 on strengthening protections against trafficking persons and federal contracts, which has similar provisions, and this committee really needs to make sure that that's implemented. And one of the most important reasons is U.S. leadership. If we can demonstrate that we're trying to dive down into these issues, then it gives us much better moral authority to try to address these issues with other governments. Third, technology can play a role in providing worker information. One such platform has recently been de developed, Contratados. Think of this as the mobile application Yelp, but for foreign labor uh, recruiters and for companies. It allows workers to rate companies and employers and to warn other workers of bad experiences. A lot was been said about supply chains. The work is hard to look at these supply chains, and we can try to help companies think about their supply chains. For example, the Coalition for Immokalee Workers, works at, that was mentioned in, by Ms. Bader-Blau, works directly with workers, growers, corporations to together eliminate slavery and the sexual abuse that comes with it from tomato fields in Florida. 
Te uh, technology and big data was mentioned. Verite, which is a leader in uh, issues of looking at labor, and Palantir Technologies, which is a big data analytics company that's used across many areas of law enforcement, are partnering to pilot a potentially transformative analytical product that will enable companies to unravel complex labor supply chains and identify risks of human trafficking and forced labor. There are other kinds of private sector and, and civil society partnerships that can work across sectors. For example, in the sustainability area, there's a lot of work been done to, to provide, try to prevent rainforests from being cut down in order to preserve the rainforest. However, there's also forced labor and modern slavery that are engaged with both the cutting of the forest and then the palm plantations that are planted in their place. If we can bring these siloed communities together to work together, they can try to make uh, real progress in, in this area. Similarly, Mr. Chairman, we're, we in Humanity United are working in Nepal with brick kiln owners. They, we're trying to provide them incentives so that they can both reduce emissions and also end child labor. However, we have to be careful about the unintended consequences of our actions. As workers who return to their village can fall into the same cycle of poverty and exploitation. Small investments in education and livelihoods, we just heard, can make our efforts to free slaves sustainable. That is why baseline measurements and strong evaluation and monitoring are critical to ensure that the interventions are actually reducing modern slavery as just as opposed to just displacing it. I go through, Mr. Chairman, in my testimony, a number of other matters regarding partnerships, in the, including the way the corporate sector can work with law enforcement in order to try to eliminate uh, human trafficking in, in, through the data that they collect. Um, but we really need to bring together private donors, governments, the private sector, civil society, and survivors together. And just in conclusion, Mr. Chairman and Senator Menendez and other members of the committee, last week marked the 150th year since the House of Representatives voted to approve the 13th Amendment, ending slavery in the United States. And this coming December, we will mark the adoption of the amendment as the law of the land. This committee can play a really instrumental leadership role in helping mark that anniversary by pushing forward the fight against human trafficking and modern slavery. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you for your testimony and your entire statement will be made a part of the record and thank you each uh, for what you've said today and sharing your experiences. Mr. Kofi Annan, um, how aware are the people of Ghana that this slavery issue exists and what is it that would motivate parents to allow their children uh, to become a part of this? Thank you very much. Um, I'll say awareness, um, there's been a number of initiatives to create awareness, but there's um, a long way uh, for us to go. Uh, you know, we have a largely illiterate population, and therefore the platform to use for awareness is very important. If you use the mass media, you are targeting the elite, and they would, they would, they will have the information, but they are not the ones that are primarily um, affected by, by this issue, which means that in order to be effective in um, creating awareness in the various communities, you need to target them either in their own languages or in their communities, and that's where the gap is. If we are supposed to um, get into every community with the message, then it means that government must take the leadership, because government has access to almost all the media platforms, including the modern uh, media and then the uh, traditional media. And so government must take the lead in all of this uh, that we are doing. 
I, I believe that um, in the next few years, we need to at least reach half of the population. Now we don't even, we cannot say even 20% uh, of the population have been reached with a message. No. So that makes it very difficult for us to even assess ourselves as how we are bringing everybody on board in terms of creating awareness in, the, in this situation. And, and the parents though, are they, they're obviously aware in many of the cases that their children are being uh, uh, victims of slavery, are they not? They are not, you know, in most cases, when a parent are selling their children, they are oblivious of what the children are going into. Because in most cases, they think that uh, because they are poor, because they can't take care of them, they are giving them out for the children to have a better life. They're going to have education. They are going to be taken care of better than they are being taken care of in their own homes. They're going to have a med better medical care, et cetera, et cetera. So, they give these children out with all good intentions in most cases, only for those children to end up being enslaved. And that is where the problem is. And that is where as soon as they get to know that the, the reason why they give the children out is different from how the children are being used, then they demand for the children to be returned. But because they don't have the capacity to go and bring their own children, that is why they come to some of us to rescue the children for them. But they, we are not the ones they should come to. They have to go to government. This is where we will need to sustain and build upon the, the, the successes that we have chalked by creating more awareness. So the parents know that it is not a good place to send their children to by selling them to this, those traffickers. Uh, but the only way they should sustain their family and their, their children should be you know, in a classroom. Because wherever they go, it ends up being a bad situation for them. Thank you very much, Ms. Woburuntu. Um, you're obviously incredibly well educated, had a great job uh, in Indonesia, and yet ended up in a situation here in the United States uh, through a recruiter uh, where you were in obviously a, a very terrible situation, fortunately escaped and are helping others. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, how that occurred, what the experience was with the recruiter, uh, and then post that, um, how the prosecution worked with you here in the U.S. Uh, thank you. At that moment, it's very hard during the political and religious turbulence fell out, so uh, they posted the advert like job advertisement in many media like newspaper in the television that there is a certain job in United States in some other countries and the requirement you paid my my case was three thousand US dollars and the job you can work in the hotel, in the hospital, like some other jobs. So when we see the advertisement which is promised a big amount salary like 5,000 US dollars a month. Well, I work as a manager in a bank. I receive only about $200. I feel United States is a dreamland. The US dollar is a big money for us. So why not? So I tried. I got legitimate paper from Chicago and I applied the visa and I got my visa and flew to New York City. During the prosecution, it wasn't really 
good for me because of at that moment they, I was homeless. They didn't give me place to stay while I was cooperated with law enforcement. I was homeless for weeks, months, but soon Sephora Gaisen helped me to stay in the shelter. So at that moment, the law enforcement didn't believe it's happened here. The police turned me down for many times, but I kept trying that one day you will listen to me. So I went to different uh, pressing to tell the story, but they still didn't listen until the U.S. Navy officer listened to me at the park while I packed food to eat. So he connected me to FBI, and FBI appointed one of the local pressing in New York to take my case. But during the investigation, they thought I was, I'm sorry my language, they thought I was a sex worker. But I told them I had a diary, I have all the copy of my passport. I flew to New York City with this all complete. So they put me in the cold room without any food or drink. I asked them, I need to drink, I need to go to the bathroom. But they didn't listen. They didn't help me to handle my trauma in the investigation process. They just make me so suffer. They thought maybe I can cooperate, but I told them the truth. I told them what need to be done. The girls was there, the trafficker there, and I had all the address of the brothel and the hotels because I wrote in a notebook. They didn't believe me until a couple hours. And then finally they said, okay, are you ready to go to the brothel that you work? So we went to that place and my story was true. So they believed me. So we rescued girls and put my trafficker into the justice system. I was testifying and we prosecuted they prosecuted, not me, uh, three traffickers and some of them on the run because I was trafficked by organized crime. But I wasn't really happy because of they threatened my family in Indonesia. And the government, US government went to US embassy in Indonesia, got all my paperwork, but they didn't have a protection for my family. This trafficker came to my family until 2007. It was about six, seven years. My family also suffered. I got protection in the United States, but my family didn't get it. So my trafficker in Indonesia, also the biggest travel agent in Indonesia, and the government didn't do anything of what they did to many people, not only to me. That's what I propose if the U.S. government will able to lead the interconnection or collaboration with all different countries, not only Indonesia, to do this. Thank Very you. impactful. Thank you both. And uh, uh, in order to be courteous uh, to my colleagues, I'll press on. I may want to come back, but it's all right and ask you a question. Senator Menendez. Yeah. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, um, and thank both of you for being willing to come forth and talk about your uh, incredibly compelling uh, experiences and the strength of human dignity to overcome. And uh, it's really, uh, uh, I think, two very compelling stories among many, I am sure, that, that exist. So I appreciate that. And I, I want to ask you questions in a minute. Before I, I, I get to you, I want to ask Mr. Abramowitz, since the Trafficking uh, Victims Protection Act was enacted in 2000, what uh, has been the U.S. government's top achievements for combating human trafficking? And what has been its key failures? Um, thanks for that question, uh, uh, Mr. Menendez, Senator Menendez. Uh, I think that the first piece of it is they took an international agreement, the Palermo Protocol, which the United States became a party to, and they were actually able to try to take steps in other countries to implement it. I think, as many of you know, the, in, the international agreements and treaties like this, they get signed by countries, and then the countries don't take it seriously. They don't really try to implement it. And through the trafficking office, they were able to get countries around the world to pass laws, which, as Mr. Haugen said in the first panel, really are pretty good. There are gaps, there are problems, and so then the question became implementation. So the first, I think, uh, achievement was that they really have got these issues mainstreamed into so many of these different places. Second, I think the TIP report then measures the behavior of these states and has created civil society in these various countries that can hold up this report as, as much as some of the governments really hate that they do that and say, look, here are the problems that you have. If you, if you don't have these problems, explain it to them, explain it to us. So it's really supported civil society in, in moving forward. Um, in terms of the uh, challenges that the government has had, I think one of the major challenges is, is trying to position this issue within all the other challenges that the uh, U.S. government faces in relations with other countries. Uh, as I was saying, I'm very concerned about the TIP report this year without a TIP ambassador in place because there are pressures that come from the field to say, Look, you know, this is a very important country. Uh, we're in the middle of TPP negotiations. We can't talk about Malaysian electronics, for example, is one issue that the U.S. government was wrestling with over the last year. And I think trying to strengthen those efforts to try to have this be an important value within the U.S. government is really critical. And I think this committee can uh, really play a role by, as witnesses come up to the committee, ask them about these issues, show them your importance when the ambassador nominees come through your office, talk to them about this issue, indicate that this is an important issue for all the members, and I, I think that can really make a difference. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, one other question. Uh, we've heard a lot of the testimony so far about these recruiters, and they seem to be a significant part of the process in which people ultimately get led to trafficking. Uh, because they create the nexus between a workforce and then the exploitation. Is, I get a sense that we don't really do very much about pursuing recruiters. Isn't there not a better way to go after these recruiters, to think about whether or not they should, uh, as we find recruiters that are actually in the midst of the exploitation, uh, deny them visas to the United States, take other actions, look at it as a criminal enterprise, uh, 
Give me some sense about that. Yeah, so I think there are a number of different pieces that uh, people are thinking about working on. The uh, Ed Royce's Forte Act, which was mentioning, creates more transparency, but also creates a regulatory system, which uh, you know, could be challenging in the current environment, that says that if you're going to be a recruiter, you have to register. And companies, if they use recruiters that are registered, are safe. If, they, if they, it turns out that's a bad recruiter, but at least we'll know who they are and we can target our investigations. And that is a big problem around the world. In Nepal, which is gonna send 900,000 to 1.5 million workers to uh, the Gulf and to Qatar as part of the World Crop infrastructure, there are 80,000 unregistered individuals who are recruiting these people from villages all over the country. So I think that trying to you know, talk to the source countries and trying to get that under control. One of the things that uh, some countries are trying is to say, look, no recruitment fees at all. And if it turns out that the worker can show that there were recruitment fees paid, then the, that, that worker can go to the company who's using that labor and ask for reimbursement. If the companies are on the hook for having to pay recruitment fees, they're going to start making sure that the recruiters are not doing anything that is, is illegal. And I think that's a, that's a reform that um, you know, Qatar is looking at. For example, they haven't quite implemented it yet. They've said they were going to do some of these things. They haven't done it yet. But th I think that some of those kinds of reforms can really help. Okay. The, you mentioned Nepal. Uh, the, the Guardian reported that uh, in 2014, uh, Nepal citizens working in Qatar, uh, that one died every two days because of extreme heat uh, and conditions that, that shouldn't be accepted. So I think we have the, the Qatari foreign minister here. It might be a good opportunity to raise some of these issues with him. I agree. Uh, Ms. Wawaruntu, uh, first of all, thank you for your work uh, that you're doing in the state of New Jersey and the Human Trafficking Commission. We appreciate your service. And <coughs> in that regard, you, you know, when you... You talked about your experience. How is it that we, you think, from your experience, that we get law enforcement and the judicial system to work better with trafficking victims uh, to investigate and successfully prosecute those who uh, put you into uh, slavery? How you, you, you described a set of circumstances in which you were not believed, you were thought to be a voluntary sex worker, a whole different set of circumstances, and you almost had to fight for credibility. Almost seems to me that there should be some type of uh, basis under which you're believed until proven that that's not true. I mean, give me a sense of how you think we might be able to do better. Uh, on 2014, I was with some other survivors at the federal level, survivor hearing at the White House. Mm -hmm. So I gave my voices that something needs to be done according how law enforcement work with a victim of human trafficking. I use a victim because of they need to get help. They need to get a service. They need to be listened. So I told to the law enforcement at the Department of Justice and OVC that one, need to better identify the victim of human trafficking in sex in, and labor. Because to identify both victim need have a specific element that some of them is have a difference. 
identify sex trafficking victim can be through law enforcement because somehow they will not tell you at the same time because they are afraid. Example, young girls that traffic and then the law enforcement, excuse me lang my language, busted, busted the place and pulled the girls to the prison and treated them as a victim, not as a victim. Especially under 18, the TVPA said under victim, children, yes, 18 years old, children goes directly become a victim. But our law enforcement still treat them as a victim. They are not child prostitution. They are a victim. Mm. So somehow, the law enforcement who work directly on the field, they don't know. They lack of how they can treat the victim. Second, need sensitivity training to identify the victim of human trafficking. Sensitivity training include cultural, American culture and Indonesian culture, Chinese culture are different. So they need to understand how to deal with certain people who came from around the world or dealing with the domestic victim. And then the third is having the organization who give direct service to involve in the investigation. So the investigation will be properly with the time management, also have a case management. Usually law enforcement didn't work with the case and time management, how they identify victim, how they solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you both for your insights. And, and I just want you to know, Ms. Wawamuntu, that by New Jersey standards, busted is a mild word. So uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, there's more I could say, but I will not. Uh, Senator, Senator, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, th and thank you to you all for your very illuminating testimony and, um, and, and to the chair and ranking member for calling this hearing. Um, the timing is exquisite. Uh, the, yesterday, the Vatican announced that this Sunday would be an international day of prayer against human trafficking. And the date of February 8th was, was chosen because it's the feast day for St. Josephine Bakita, who was born in 1868 in Darfur, kidnapped at age nine, and then sold into slavery twice in her life, once in Sudan and once in Italy before she passed away in 1947. And so that is a good thing. I think the church communities around the world, and this is an ecumenical effort, educating us all about signs and what we can do to help is very important. I, I just have sort of one question, and I'm not exactly sure. In, in some ways, I wish I had a State Department person here, but let me just throw the question out. And, and Ms. while we're into it, it's kind of about your experience. Trafficking and slavery, different kinds. There's between nations other than the United States. There's slavery and trafficking within the United States. Your story is one of from another nation into the United States. And I want to ask about that. It would seem that we should be able to develop a, a training for consular officials who are interviewing applicants for visas. We should be able to develop training for our um, customs and border patrol folks that are interviewing visitors as they come into the United States that wouldn't always discover whether somebody was a victim of trafficking, but would, you know, there's, there's got to be some warning signs that we should be training our people about. 
Is that something that we do well already, or is there more we can do with our consular officials and our Border Patrol folks to make sure that we, we can stop trafficking as it's occurring? And I would love to hear from any of you on that. Yes. Uh, TVPA reauthorization mentioned about how Department of State will work on the prevention through the video awareness in all U.S. embassy around the world. But the work is already done, but it's not perfect, and we need to work more in that details because of right now, like Homeland Security have the pamphlet, Department of uh, Transportation, also UNICEF has pamphlet everywhere that raising awareness. And the most important is in embassy around the world have to provide the information, the right of the person who want to enter to another country. So far, it's like not much information about what they write according, probably just become a visitor, just become a worker, mm -hmm. or this kind of uh, situation, how they can enter. And I really advocating about the prevention in Department of State, and I will diligently work for that. Excellent. Mr. Uh, yeah, Senator Kane, I think this is a very important issue, as Ms. Um, Mororuntu was just saying, in the 2008 Act, we required that there have be this pamphlet that's given out to every worker, and uh, the 2013 Act required that this video be actually put in place. And I think those are good things to try to protect the worker who's coming to the United States mm -hmm. so they know who to call. There are all these stories about how the worker held on to this little pamphlet and stuck it in their shoe. And mm -hmm. finally, when they had an opportunity, were able to call a hotline and get out of their slavery. I think the problem for the consular officer is that, as in you know, Ms. Warren's case, the case presents reasonably well. There's a, you know, an application, there's a job that's supposedly there, and so on and then they have a very short amount of time to review. And I think that there could be a better way of trying to determine whether there a real job is really happening there, and also trying to find out who are the bad labor recruiters. Take her case. This was a major labor recruiting firm that brought her into this situation. So they should be able to go to the recruiters and say, what's going on here? What's, we've had problem cases coming from you, and work with the government to try to say, you've got to work on, on, on these cases. We have very skilled foreign service nationals in our embassies, in the consular section, and if we devoted more resources to doing more investigations of which of these labor recruiting companies were really the problem, that could make a big difference. Like the other members of the committee, I do a good bit of traveling, and any time I travel, I try to sit down with our troops who are in the places I am, but I also try to sit down with foreign service officers on their first or second tours just to hear about the challenges, and almost all in early tours are working in consular uh, capacities. And, you know, I'm struck by how hard their job is. The volume of applications is huge, and that's very difficult. But it would seem like, um, you know, we ought to be able to give kind of almost profile information. You know, here's the kind of thing to watch out for that might suggest that there's trafficking going on. And uh, we ought to have enough institutional expertise within state and DHS and everybody that's DOL, that's, uh, DOJ that's working on this to, to give that kind of information, both in the consular offices and uh, at the Border Patrol side. So that's a, 
that's a question that I'll follow up with maybe for the record or follow up directly with the agencies about. Yeah, I think that, I think that you know, between the visa fraud section at state, the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department, you could put together an interesting profile, of course, context by context. Yeah. I will say in the earlier panel, Senator Kane, you missed an exchange about diplomatic visas, mm -hmm. and there are some real concerns around mm -hmm. whether the Protocol Bureau and the State Department is doing enough. You all were, are familiar with the Cobrigati case, where there was a case brought against an Indian diplomat in New York because of forced labor with a domestic servant and because of a variety of issues, that case was let go. And as Mr. Uh, Ms. Bader-Blau mentioned in the previous panel, there are these questions about what's going on with India and whether they're trying to get out of the oversight framework that was created in the 2008 Act over a specific visa category that's usually used to go to a different visa category for these domestic servants. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that should be looked at by, by you and the staff to see what's going on there. Thank you. All right, thank you very much for your testimony today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator King. Um, I want to thank you for being here. I think this has been most impactful. And uh, I want to thank our ranking member for his shared interest uh, in this topic and for allowing this hearing to go forward today as it has. And hopefully, uh, it will produce results here. Uh, to the two witnesses who've been victims, um, I want to thank you for the courage to be here, but also taking your experiences and using it to help other people and to help us today first to understand some of the cultural issues and the lack of awareness. I mean, it seems to me that one of the easy to produce uh, outcomes is to make sure people are more fully aware and that parents understand what is happening in various countries uh, with their young ones. Uh, and to understand the uh, tremendous plight of, of victims who in many cases are not dealt with as victims. That's an experience that we heard from others. And again, uh, uh, just making more awareness, uh, uh, creating more awareness with the law enforcement agencies, but also uh, making sure that we use best practices and your efforts to, to work through public policy uh, to deal with us effectively. Uh, all, all three of you have been outstanding witnesses, our first panel certainly was uh, a very good panel and as Senator Kane mentioned, uh, I can't imagine a better time for us to be focused on this. Um, the, the issue regarding um, foreign officials, uh, we do have a meeting today with a, a foreign minister and candidly the topic is ISIS. And a lot of times we do get caught up, uh, as we should, uh, in important issues of national security. But to be aware of this issue also and to be able to push this as we meet with other officials, but also to produce some public policy, hopefully, that will deal with this on a far grander scale with a much bigger vision. So thank you all for being here. Your testimony was, was outstanding. Um, and uh, for the information of the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, February the 6th, including for members to submit questions for the record. Uh, we ask you, if you will, uh, to respond as promptly as you can to those. Uh, your responses will also be made a part of the record. Uh, and with the thanks of the committee, uh, this, uh, this meeting is now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you.